Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the American Association of Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill. I'm the Chief Diversity Officer here at the AAVMC. And today we've got a really, really important fun, lively topic for discussion. So we're going to be talking about free speech today. Now, if you uh, spend any time on Beyonce's internet, um, and if you are a social media denizen, you know that there is lots and lots and lots and lots of people out there constantly squabbling about their right to free speech and right to free expression. A lot of the squabbling is really the result of misunderstandings about what the First Amendment actually protects. Either people think things like social media content moderation goes too far um, or it doesn't go far enough, often forgetting that these platforms are largely privately owned, right? Um, oftentimes, and that privately owned actually matters. So um, oftentimes we're really talking about disinformation, misinformation, hate speech, um, or speech that is just otherwise offensive, but frankly still might be legal. And so um, as someone who what feels like a million years ago was a uh, lovely little government major um, at George Mason University in undergrad. Um, this conversation almost frustrates me to no end because we spent so much time, their whole courses just devoted to the First Amendment. Um, and I really, in my heart of hearts, feel like it really shouldn't be this hard, but here we are. So today, my guests are Elizabeth Martinez Podolsky. Hopefully, I but um, did I did I pronounce that right? I'll okay. awesome sauce. Um, and Maurice Cotman. Um, and so uh, we're gonna have this wonderful conversation today. Um, I have to say, here is the um, disclaimer: we are not constitutional experts. <laughs> Before anybody like gets, you know, a little too. Um, excited about this conversation. Um, there are no, like, you know, we made Law Journal. None of that is here today. It is just some wonderful DEI professionals talking about um, free speech. So with that, I am going to ask my colleagues to kind of give their little kind of self-intro as is our custom on the show. Elizabeth, we're going to start with you. Sure. Thank you, Lisa. Hi, everyone. My name is Elizabeth Martinez-Podolsky. I go by she, her pronouns. And I have the privilege to serve as a director for diversity, equity, and inclusion at the College of Veterinary Medicine at University of Minnesota. So um, it's uh, exciting to be here. Prior to this, um, I worked in a college of agriculture as an administrator as well. And my personal research focuses on Latinx professionals in the agriculture industry. Awesome. And Maurice. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Maurice Cotman. I am the inaugural director for diversity, equity, and inclusion at West 
um, Washington State University, College of Veterinary Medicine. I am from North Philadelphia. I don't say PA because Philadelphia, true Philadelphians don't say Pennsylvania all of the time. First generation. Before I was here, I was out in Philadelphia. I helped create, facilitate, and grow the Student Center for Diversity and Inclusion on Drexel University's campus. And I'm happy to be here speaking about free speech, not, not because we are constitutional experts at all, like Lisa said, but because I think that the way in which we communicate today has been so muddled and it's been so hard to actually have communication and conversation that talking about what it means to have free speech is important, even if it is from people who may not be in the legal world of free speech. Yeah, yeah. So let us dig in. And also, if you are happen to have maybe two screens open and you are in the Zoom waiting room, you are in the wrong location. Um, you need to go on over to uh, Diversity Inclusion on Air's YouTube page and catch the show there. So, Maurice, I'm going to start with you now. Um, I did a little background, of course, um, uh, like I mentioned before, government rager. Yay, government. Um, so, here is what, you know, we talk about with free speech, right? I'm going to read um, the little constitutional piece, which I had up and now it's not up. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Here is what the Constitution actually says. The First Amendment. Um, so, well, the discussion. The, the description of what it says, right? So the First Amendment provides that Congress make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting its free exercise. It protects freedom of speech, the press, assembly, the right to petition the government for redress of grievances, which in D.C. means lots and lots of protest. So, but really kind of narrowing this a little bit down to uh, free speech. Um, what is speech? What is it? Okay. All right. I'm getting going with that, that level with it. All right. So I would say to me, there are various levels of speech and all of it doesn't have to do with you actually being able to utter words. You know, I think that there are symbols that are that are versions of speech. I think that our actions can be versions of speeches. I think that even the way in which we censor or not censor things are forms of speech. Uh, I think specifically when we talk about free speech, I think that this is so nuanced that it can't just be as base level as possible. Like for me, uh, I think when I'm talking about free speech in general, I like to use the Constitution Center's version, the simple version, because, you know, it gets very elongated where it is First Amendment, freedom of religion, speech, press, assembly and petition. To me, that just means there's a freedom of expression, even though that freedom of expression changes depending on the form that it's in. Um, I know, for instance, that like freedom of speech as it relates to symbolism is allowed in this country like you're allowed to fly different types of flags even if the flags that you are flying have dubious history in them you can technically still fly those flags because according to our laws at the moment that does not mean that immediate harm or damage is going to be done to a specific person or community however you can't just hang up a noose you know, so there is this kind of nuance to it where like the idea of freedom of speech still has that. And even the idea of speech, at least in my personal um, position on it, has to do with the idea that there is retaliation, retribution and actual things that can happen just because you're choosing to speak freely. That doesn't absolve you from those issues and being able to speak freely or speak in general. You have to be able to understand not only are there nuances, but also your words, your actions, your symbols, whatever the version of speech is, don't come without possible consequences. So at the base level, I think that's what speech is. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so it is all those activities, right? Um, it's all of those things. Um, and we're going to get to those, um, uh, that second part of your, like, what I call the FAFO, or which I'm not supposed to use those language, that language, but you know, FAFO, for folks that don't know what that means, you can open up another browser and get on over to your urban dictionary because, you know, when we say things, sometimes there's going to be consequences and we actually bear the responsibility of what we say and do. Right. So um, Elizabeth, anything to add to kind of just yeah. this general yeah. discussion about speech? Sure. You know, I see free speech similar to what Maurice uh, just shared with us. Um, but in addition to that, a social responsibility because it it moves more on the collective and it provides the ability to express viewpoints that help society. So it is a petition that's in better, for the betterment of all. Sometimes it's often confused with the ability to say with what one personally wants to say. Um, but again, it's it's focused on um, the collective. And it provides the opportunity for civic-minded people um, to work um, towards social responsibility. So it's more than a right. And I think there are professional and personal ethics that might drive someone's willingness to engage in free speech practices. Um, But I believe free speech is a social responsibility. So we need to think about evidence-based concepts um, to be able to engage in free speech because it impacts more than ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so um, to your point about it being kind of, you know, broader than even just the U.S. Constitution, the U.N.'s um, uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights includes um, a clause about freedom of expression being a human right. Right. So, you know, the reality is, yeah, we can say anything. (laughs) You just folks just need to understand that we do so at our own peril sometimes, right? And so um, as someone who has been using Twitter for a very long time and has been, um, you know, in, in tr- the, um, the uh, you know, just in transparency, kind of wondering when am I going to ditch that and maybe kind of move somewhere else um, because, you know, there's a lot of some free speech or free-ish speech on, on Twitter where things are sometimes uncomfortable, I think it's really important for us to talk about like, well, what is, if if that's free speech and, and it's anything and everything, your activities, your behaviors, your, what you actually say, sometimes facial expressions, all of that kind of stuff is con- potentially considered speech. And well, what is protected speech? I, can I go? Yeah. Yeah, Maurice. I, I, so I think for me, I feel like, at least in America, America has shown us that we try to protect pretty much all types of speech until it becomes um, a point that can carry out violence. And even then, I feel like it still becomes a little bit more protective. Like I know that there's a Brandenburg versus Ohio Supreme Court case where it states basically inflammatory speech is protected unless it's an intentionally and effectively provokes a crowd to immediately carry out violent and unlawful action. And to me, that just is based on somebody's morality. Like, what do you consider that to get to that point? Um, Because like kind of going back to the point that I said earlier about like flying flags, like if I see certain flags in America, in my mind, I think that immediate danger is going to come to me because of my identity being a black man in America, even though the Supreme Court might not agree with that. So I think there's a morality clause as it relates to what's protected and what's not. But the things that are really protected um, that I can tell that I see is that advocacy and most 
if not all forms, is essential protect, essentially protected by free speech. So the advocacy could be political affiliation, it could be religious, it could be just your general thoughts on life and society and things like that. So your advocacy is protected. And then um, your your ability to advocate not only for yourself, but for self, for others and others' abilities to advocate for themselves. So the advocacy part to me is the most protected part of speech. And then everything else as it relates to the nuances of it kind of becomes a morality clause, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Elizabeth? And yeah, so, you know, and, it's an ex- and to exercise free speech, it provides a critical lens to to policies, laws, and social norms. And I think that's what Maurice was getting to. The, you know, so because it's a social, because it is a social responsibility, I think it requires an understanding that you are using a, pu- a public platform to share something that moves society. So it requires a broad understanding and historical context to make declarative statements that have real impact on people. Whereas non-protected speech uh, might be personally motivated and it might um, position advantages to for some people and not others. Yeah. So, um, yeah, non-protected speech could look like microaggressions, which are intentional or non-intentional mm-hmm. acts. Of derogatory slights and in the workplace they shouldn't be allowed but sometimes they are so i always say microaggressions should be examined against our institution's definitions of discrimination and harassment because through that definition they would be considered non-protected speech because they obstruct a healthy and functional work environment absolutely absolutely and so you know um there's certainly lots and lots of documents out there about protected speech versus unprotected speech and it's almost easier to define what's not protected speech than it is what's protected, right? So um, so things like, you know, you can't yell fire in a, the, the crowded, um, you know, movie theater, that's not protected speech. You can't do that stampede, people get hurt, right? Um, and so, um, but there's other things like that harassment, which uh, um, much like you, I would include harassment, um, both kind of the macro aggressions, which I would also consider some flags. And like on this show, I am very like, let's get down to brass tacks. The battle flag <laughs> that is often flown. I'm a Southern gal. Um, the battle, the, the Confederate battle flag for a lot of Americans um, is a very problematic symbol, right? For what it re- represents for um, a large swath of Americans. And yet another group of Americans um, believe that this is, you know, a, um, a historical reference. It is, you know, um, what is it? Uh, heritage, not hate, all of those kinds of things. And so we kind of butt up against each other. But in this country, it is constitutional to fly that flag, but it is not constitutional necessarily to burn the U.S. flag, right? I mean, there are certain kind of parameters around these things. But so um, some of the other things that are not protected, defamation, um, actual threats. So, you know, when you kind of are talking about... um, uh, folks that are, um, you know, dealing with issues around stalking um, and and very violent harassment, those types of things, not protected speech, um, obscenity and child pornography. Um, the child pornography piece is um, fairly understandable, despite the fact that, you know, years ago, <laughs> the court said, well, we can't really define pornography, but we know it when we see it. When when a child is involved, I think it's a lot clearer, right? But that kind of large obscenity kind of definition, like obscene language is not protected language. Well, you know, all we have to do is look at TV and see that that can change over time, right? Like in the 80s, there were lots of things on TV that, you know, or lots of things that weren't on TV that we see in terms of language 
very commonplace now, right? And I don't mean like on just HBO or whatever, but just on regular broadcast, if anybody actually still does regular broadcast and not streaming. Um, but, you know, obscene language is not um, uh, protected. And um, one of my favorites, um, fighting words are not protected speech. Um, so, you know, those kids on the playground, no, not protected speech. And then non-expressive conduct um, is, not, um, uh, is not protected. And then finally, um, incitement to imminent lawless action is also not protected speech, which, um, you know, again, don't want to be too political. However, we are dealing with a case with a former, um, you know, president of the U.S. who is um, the associated behaviors with January 6th is kind of what is bringing a lot of these kind of free speech things to to into the public discourse, right? Um, if you can just say, hey, come to D.C., it'll be wild. Typically, that would be a pretty non-engaging tweet, right? But when um, part of this whole thing is who says it and what is the context, right? Also can really have a huge bearing on what constitutes protected or unprotected speech, right? So a lot of discussion about all of this, um, especially with respect to cancel culture. Um, I've done a show on cancel culture before, but, you know, thoughts on the relationship between, um, you know, oh my goodness, you can't like censor me. Um, I feel like I'm being canceled. Um, and those two things usually kind of end up getting mushed together. Any thoughts on cancel culture? I'm going to start with Elizabeth and um, Maurice is like, yeah, I got some things to say. So <laughs> Elizabeth. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think cancel culture is part of free speech. It's a critique on social norms, policies, and practice, but everything is balanced. So when we see cancel culture, like non-protected speech, and, and it doesn't consider other groups or history or context or track record and impact, then it can cancel the very thing it's trying to protect. So an example of this is the way we have to find balance, kind of both critique and grace with the elder leaders in our justice community. Like some of our historical leaders have definitely moved the needle um, for equity, but we know that there are all also areas that we wish weren't part of their practice, like misogyny or anti-LGBT sentiments or religious hegemony. So, like we have to find our our approach in balancing canceling with redirecting. Yeah, I I love that you've kind of repositioned cancel culture as a component of free speech and that it is really, uh, it is social commentary and critique, right? Mm -hmm. You said this thing and here's the consequences for said right. thing. Like you got to say it. We didn't stop right. you from saying it. Exactly. This is the response. Maurice, thoughts? I don't think cancel culture exists. I don't think it's real. I don't think it works. I Tell think that because, because if you, if you think about it, like, Cancel culture only works when, when we don't want somebody's product. When we care about how talented a person is, or we care about what that person can produce, or we care about their story, whatever it may be, there's not a canceling, there's a pausing. To me, canceling means like you dispose of something completely, or you censor it partially or completely. And it becomes like, if you just took a pause, was that really a cancel? I feel like it's kind of like when you watch a show in the fall and you're like, we're going through the fall break. It ain't canceled. It's just on a little bit of a hiatus and it'll be right back. You know, so I think the idea of cancel culture as a whole actually doesn't work. I get that it's a thing that people try to do, but I think it's also something that is rather dangerous just because talking about free speech because we don't agree with 
somebody's opinions and belief system and thought process unless it is directly infringing upon a person's freedom liberties and rights in a legal sense i don't think that canceling out that voice is actually the answer um it, it brings me back to like the story that talk about frederick douglas frederick douglas story where he was holding uh anti-slavery meeting back in the 1860s and pro-slavery people rushed in and started opposing the meeting so they canceled the meeting and then the next day he said to suppress free speech is a double wrong it violates the rights of the hearer as well as those who of the speaker so it becomes this thing like you might not agree with me but when it comes to free speech i have the right to express how i feel about these certain things and i think that we can come to it as a as a collective in an intelligent way and i think one of the biggest issues that's happening with free speech and, and especially with cancel culture is that we don't want to think about it critically we want to think about it simplistically about critical and complicated situations so it becomes i don't like it i don't want it no as opposed to okay i don't i'm probably never going to agree with you and your facts are not facts they're feelings however tell me why and that part doesn't really happen a lot of times it's like get it completely out there or we just eliminate due process as it relates to cancel culture we just be like i think you're guilty so you're guilty and it's like you can have that belief and that feeling but my feelings don't make it necessarily fact so i think that it is a little dubious when we kind of combine the two too often like i get that we can there can be counter protest and things like that but that doesn't mean that we should can't we we're technically should be canceling out another person's perspectives and ideas even if we don't believe in them I agree with both of you, right? So, um, and it, it almost sounds more like you're saying cancel culture is like you're grounded for two weeks while we're mad at you and the, until we find something else to be mad about. <laughs> right? Because it usually isn't permanent, right? So, for example, um, was it Bud Light? Okay, Bud Light, they had a, um, a a trans person, a trans woman on the beer can. And, you know, a bunch of people were like, we are not going to buy Bud Light, right? So Bud Light is like, out. But then I'm like also reading that a lot of um, LGBT advocates and allies are also now boycotting Bud Light <laughs> because they didn't stand behind the person they featured on the can. So, I mean, a lot of people are apparently are mad at Bud Light for, for two sides of the same coin in, in many ways, right? Speech on both sides. Um, and actually it is hitting their bottom line, but not singularly because of either kind of related consequence, right? Or interpretation of kind of, of, of Bud Light's speech, Right. Um, but I do kind of like this idea that it is a critique um, and maybe it is rooted some in feelings and some in, um, you know, um, um, data um, information. Right. Especially when we are confronted with so much kind of mis and disinformation out there and people are like, you know, suddenly memes have become somehow weirdly equated online to, you know, newspapers of record. <laughs> Here's a meme and here's a headline. Um, one, you know, they don't really have anything to do with each other, but they're kind of given equitable or equal kind of standing in the way that people consume um, information, right? Um, so, you know, I'm not necessarily a fan of cancel culture, um, but I recognize that there does have to kind of be this 
this need for maybe not canceling, but the social critique that Elizabeth um, really kind of referred to. So I'm a little bit of a blend because you're right. Cancel culture does not work. Otherwise, we would never hear from like R. Kelly ever again. (laughs) And, and, And at the end of the day, too, Lisa, like if cancel culture really worked, we would be honest about even the bottom lines. But light is hurting. Anheuser Busch isn't. Like it's like, okay. You know, like it's like one of those things where it's like, are we okay with like the surface level victory being like, ooh, look, you lost a couple hundred million dollars when you're worth almost a trillion dollars as a company? Like, okay, if that's the win, that's the win. Like, I just don't know where the line really is when it comes to yeah. those wins and losses. Good point. Good point. Because yeah, there are lots of other products in their portfolio. (laughs) Right. Um, So, you know, let's talk a little bit about the hate speech. Right. Um, Because this is, you know, it's I framed this conversation as kind of the free speech continuum. Right. And there's stuff that we are like, yeah, no, that's not that's not cool. And then there's stuff that is like, "Eh, that's not necessarily cool, but it's legal. Right. So we've kind of, you know, um, uh, concluded that, yes, there are definitely some things like fighting words, obscenities, defamation, the threats. Um, But this piece around harassment, um, I think, is something that from a DEI perspective, especially is something that I kind of wrestle with and like how much is allowable um, legally um, versus not. And again, I think that it's important for folks to kind of think about there's the legal protections and then there's just like we out in the street (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) on the internet is the same as out on the street. Like, you know, you meet somebody at the Safeway and y'all get to tussle in in the soda aisle, like over some dumb stuff, right? So, you know, how do you think about hate speech and where do you, each of you kind of draw the line between like, yo, that was just mean, versus, wow, we have gone to a whole nother level. This is hate speech. So for, for all of you uh, watching on YouTube, I'm going to articulate what Lisa was saying about the fight in Minnesota. I will, what we call that where I'm from is on site. You know, <laughs> wherever we at, whenever I see you, it's on site. And that's just what it means. So as it relates, I, I think this one, honestly, Lisa and Elizabeth, this is the most, probably the most murky of the whole conversation for me. Um, one, because I'm from the East Coast. It's going, you have to work really hard to hurt my feelings to a point where it's even considered like it's just it's just something about it where it's like, oh, we're going on that level. Oh, we're going on that. So like for me, for me to even feel like, oh, you can't say something, it would have to be so deeply cutting and it would have to depend on the situation. Um, and that's my East Coastness in me, but also me being Petty LaBelle, Petty Pendergrass, you know, uh, Tom Petty. Sometimes it's like like Michelle Obama said, when they go low, you go high. I prefer Charlemagne to God. When they go low, you take it to the flow. So sometimes it's just like, oh, we here. Oh we go. Let's go. So it, it's really hard. And I think that's why the hate speech part is so hard, because it really is based on each individual person's morality and sensibilities and where their line is as it relates to what is what is allowable to them and what's allowable to the institution. Because I think a lot of times with hate speech, people get offended by many things that come out. But the institutions that they work for don't stand with them. Because the institution wants to be a little bit more ambiguous. So now it becomes like, is this just something that's a problem for me? Is this a personal problem or is this a universal problem? And hate speech to me is really hard when it comes to that, because, well, one, in America, I think the fact that we predominantly use English almost only a lot of the times is such a limited language. And we use words in the wrong context a lot of the times. So if somebody's not saying I hate you. Does that 
Is that the only way that we can determine hate speech? Or are there people's actions in the history attributed mm. to a person with what they are saying that provides the hate speech? And I think the nuance of it is really where it should be. And I think that hate speech in general is the biggest example of facts over feelings. Like there's a lot of stuff that I hear and see and stuff that I don't like. But I don't know if I would constitute it necessarily hate speech. And I think that there's a lot of dog whistles that happen that don't seem like they're they're actually hateful, that are actually revving people up to perform hateful acts. So I think that this is this is probably the most murky part of the conversation for me, where I don't think that there are specific only specific sentences or words that constitute hate speech for me. I try to take who a person is or what an institution is, their actions mixed with their words. And that to me determines what the hate speech line is. And for me, I don't know if I necessarily have a line outside of certain, uh, maybe a certain word in a certain time frame that is like, oh, this is what we doing? Outside of that aspect of it, I might not really have that line where I feel like I, I feel like I'm getting hate speech consistently directed at me as a person. And just the last part, and Elizabeth, I'm throwing it to you. I'm sorry I've been so long winded. A lot of times when I hear somebody's quote unquote hating on me in the position I hold at my vet school or the position I hold in life, they don't bring it to my front door. So I don't really respect it. A lot of times I, I'm like, I hear it through the way like, well, you know, this person's mad. I'm like, that sounds like a personal problem. Like we can have a conversation. So like I have a hard time with that, too, because I guess sometimes you got to show me to prove it to me that it's really about that or i'm just going to kind of bypass it Ooh, yeah. lots to unpack there we will get to that elizabeth totally, your totally, line? totally agree and you know i think being mean comes from a, a place of, of personal security and fears right so like the personal again well i think the hate speech is rooted just like maurice talked about in historical undertones and, and nuances um so it could be hate speech i think can be learned I think it could be epigenetic and I don't just mean like hereditary. I think, I think we are socialized from a young age to maybe behave a particular way. And when we get older, we might act in that way and say, well, where did I learn that? Maybe it was my mom clutching her purse, right? When somebody passed by and I was, and I was taught to fear this group of people or something like that. So that epigenetic piece, that, that reaction that we have, that we were taught um, and passed down with um, is part of it too. And it's meant to subjugate certain groups of people, right? So hate speech, I think, contributes to discrimination and harassment definitions because they cause hostile environments. Um, and they contribute to disenfranchisement because it's rooted in historical inequity. So if I'm an instructor and I say it's okay to assume that hepatitis A contamination is passed on from the farm worker to our food chain, rather than place the onus on the food production plant that doesn't allow for sanitary work conditions, then I've just granted permission to all my students to believe that farm laborers, mm. most of them Latinx populations, are disease-carrying. Mm. And I think those layers can create internalized negative beliefs about, in this case, Latinx populations, and can contribute to perpetuate historical stereotypes that impact them, right? Yeah. So I think hate speech has historical weight and power to disenfranchise. And that's where the real effect on people happens. Whereas being mean comes from a, a personal place. Yeah. Oh, wow. You've both given, like my head is going, Whoo! like there's a lot here. Um, because I think that that you, you raised some really, you both raised some really important points around kind of contextualizing speech, right? So um, there are words, phrases, things that folks say for example, to people of color or queer people or disabled people or whatever kind of marginalized groups that like, it, I hate using the word triggering, but it's like, no, it is 
you've you've stepped on that hot, <laughs> you know, electrical wire. <laughs> and um, and I really feel kind of almost compelled to respond or completely, you know, distance myself out of safety, right? Um, and and it's interesting about the um context. And I love the example that you gave about farm workers. It is um, other examples might also include things like, hey, um, you know, um, it's only what in the last year that the American Red Cross said that, um, you know, gay men um, or men who sleep with other men um, are, um, you know, now eligible to give blood right? Why couldn't they give blood in all of these years? And it was like all of this mythology around the behavior of gay men, HIV, and all of these things. But, you know, apparently we're okay with a whole group of population not (laughs) want to help um, community-wide not being able to, right? Or things like, oh my goodness, there aren't a lot of Black veterinarians because, you know, they're afraid of dogs. And it was like, okay, that's debatable. That that piece of information is debatable, right? I don't think that the data really necessarily substantiates it. However, well, why would we be avail- why would we be, we'd be afraid of dogs? Enter historical pictures of dogs being used, you know, against people of color in the civil rights movement, right? And so, yeah, there are these kind of epigenetic things that I think we don't um, give enough credence to, including I was just watching again, I'm a social media maven, was on TikTok, and it was like an amazing breakdown of like when one you see one black person run we all ask questions later. (laughs) We run. (laughs) And I know for a lot of Latinx folks, y'all run too. Like we are like, okay, this is what we're doing. Clearly there is a a safety issue. (laughs) We're out. We will figure out what the safety issue is over there. (laughs) Yeah. When it's safe. Right. And so I think that this, um, these kind of nuanced pieces around when things go from mean to hate speech are really important for folks to understand because it does make for a very murky line, right? The line is probably going to be diff- very different for marginal folks with marginalized identities, right? And the, the threshold is maybe a little bit lower. The flip side of that, to Maurice's point, um, you know, I'm from the Mid-Atlantic, not Philly, but again, um, from a Virginia girl, and again, Virginia is questionably south by a bunch of other people, but we say on site here too. <laughs> and so, you know, some communities are have a much higher tolerance and comfort with conflict, right? And so some things may or may not hit that live wire in the same way. And if it hits it, you know, you might experience that confrontation right in that moment. It's not going to be online. It's not going to be anywhere else. It's going to be really in the root beer aisle of the grocery store, (laughs) um, live and in person. So um, really, really important, um, important kind of contextual pieces, right? So um, there's also this kind of piece around um, non-verbal versus non-verbal, right? Um, I have a pretty expressive face. I've gotten much better over the course of my career of just kind of going blank. I also have had to learn how to go blank in parenting um, because I just can't respond and react to some things, right? Um, How do we deal even with the, you know, um, 
the subtle eye roll, right? Yeah, you can do it, but it, and again, it is speech that can be loud. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Other forms of nonverbals that, you know, bump up against your lines. <laughs> Maurice? I, um, I, uh, this one, this one really hits home for me because as a black man who's existing in a lot of predominantly white spaces and a lot of female dominated spaces um, and a lot of spaces where people are, I guess I'll say it like this. I, I tell people that it's amazing that when a black person does something that's considered standard, it gets all of the, it gets a standing ovation. Like you never went to jail. Wait, you don't got no kids out of wedlock. Wait, hold on. You went to college. Like it's like stuff like that. Where it's like, really? So to me, when it comes to being a minority in general, I, I say to people, I say to people who are in the majority a lot of the times that minorities can't just think about their identity. You have to think about it in two ways. Who are they? You got to know yourself and who are you in relation to everybody else? Mm-hmm. So when it and that has a lot to do with nonverbal communication as well. Like I know that I like to hold my arms like this when I'm standing because I'm a dense human being and like this is just comfortable. Like I really, this is just enjoyable. But I realize me holding my arms like this can feel like I'm being intimidating. I also know that if I look like I'm excitable sometimes in meetings, it could look like I'm being aggressive, but I might literally just be excited about what's happening, what's going on there. I, even even the idea of having a reputation for people who've never met you and known you, to me, it can be considered nonverbal because you could just hear something about somebody or you could see something about somebody and not really know what's going on. And that kind of spreads through and throughout. And I think a lot of times for people who are minoritized, it does more of a disservice than it does a service when it relates to having nonverbal communication. Because I know for me, when I walk into a room, a lot of times um, I get one of two cards almost automatically. Either I get automatically that I'm cool. Like, it's like, I don't even, I could be a, the goofiest person in the room. Like, no, but you gotta be cool though. You're the black guy here. Or people look at me a little bit hesitant because they don't know me. So I think there's a, I'm not saying it's fair, but it's something there where it's just like, you're a little standoffish. Tell me why that is. So I think that if you don't actually communicate consistently and actually thoroughly with somebody, whether it's nonverbal or verbal, it really does a disservice to the people who are more minoritized and the people who have usually less of a power dynamic in those types of relationships. And I think a lot of times, and then the flip side is true though. I think the flip side is true when minoritized people feel like people are combating their identity, putting their lives and their liberties in danger and things like that, because it is not being verbally articulated a lot of times, we don't get believed. It's like, like, nah, that's not what they mean by that. And it's like, what else could they mean by this? Like, what are we talking about? What are we doing? And even when it's verbalized, it gets a lot more grace being like, nah, but that's not what they meant. It's like, what more do we actually have to do a lot of the times? And then I think, sadly enough, that's when blood is usually spread. And then this becomes like, oh, we should have figured this out sooner. Mm hmm. Intent over impact. Intent over impact. Yeah. Elizabeth? Yeah, I think Maurice earlier talked about how spaces could also be kind of expression. And I think about that in relation to like, how are we, how are we even, you know, the body language is an important piece of it too, but what kind of communication are we what what kind of spaces are we communicating? What kind of messages are we communicating with our spaces? Um, and I think it takes like leadership and folks to be willing to think about kind of the nuances that we're sharing, whose whose story is not being portrayed as uh, connected to veterinary medicine, who's been left off the table, whose approaches to medicine in general um, are not considered. 
and what kind of undertones um, do our spaces imply. So I think it's not even just understanding and having some cultural humility to to better understand where other people are coming from. In Latino, in some Latino culture, not like eye contact is seen um, as disrespectful to elders or people that maybe you respect in the workplace. And so, you know, and that could be taken from other contexts as disrespectful, where in ours, it's incredibly respectful. So there's the body language pieces and the cultural humility that needs to be understood. But also, what kind of hostile environments are we communicating? What kind of uh, eco- ecological areas of uh, the work, in addition to our clinical spaces, our approach to medicine, uh, to working with living beings or non-living being specimens? You know, um, what kind of attitudes are we espousing in that work, too? And how can that be an extension of verbal or nonverbal behaviors that perpetuate um you know, hate or violence or inequity um, or or contribute to medical disparities. So that's such great points. And this is, yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, these space issues, the way the pedagogies that are used in um, in classes, all of these things are types of speech that we don't necessarily characterize them that way. A lot of times we don't characterize nonverbals in general, Mm-hmm. as speech, right? And yet we read them all the time, right? Like we see them all the time. And, and Maurice, I, you know, when you were talking about um, just making physical adjustments, one of the biggest things that I've, you know, certainly observed, but also just am hyper aware of is just how many minoritized men and particularly Black men step on an elevator and have to kind of adjust one because purses are clutched <laughs> often right and and it's you sometimes it's just not even intentional it's just it's a reflex right but it is speech it's nonverbal speech that is sending a message that i don't necessarily this individual who is clutching the bag doesn't feel safe for whatever reason right um um It also, these, you know, both of you have also kind of talked a little bit about some of these environmental things and why things like institutional climate is so important, right? And I think that, that, you know, to drive it home for veterinary medical colleges, like if your climate, if your institutional climate at your college is um, really loosey-goosey or is like, hey... (laughs) I mean, I do believe in let freedom ring. However, comma, you know, there's some no-no things that probably should not be happening in this environment. Um, and if you're not willing or able to check those things, just know that the environment, it starts to become toxic exactly. and learning doesn't really happen in toxic environments. I mean, too much cognitive energy is spent on surviving and navigating the hour of that class or the lunch or whatever. Yeah, Maurice. And Lisa, you said that beautifully. And I think something something that I've recently been telling people in, in my life and in my orbit, professionally and personally, is that I think that there is something that needs to be figured out and discussed more as it relates to minoritized people where I don't believe that we're allowed to be the standard human being with standard human emotions. Like, I don't believe that's the case. I think that a lot of times we feel like we have to be superhuman. And then once we actually show that we are human, it actually, there is no real grace given. It's like, oh, remember that one time you blew up three years ago? And it's like, 
I've literally never blown up ever until one time when it was pushing me to my edge. I had a bad day, but we don't get a chance to have a lot of bad days. That really is the case. Like we have to be exceptional at so many different things and our emotions are one of them. And I think that a lot of people who we either interact with, people who we may or may not work with, people who we actually see in society, there is a level of grace given to forms of humanity and mediocrity that minoritized people typically don't have on the table. Snap, snap. So driving back to the, this conversation about speech and freedoms and all of those types of things, yeah, there is kind of um, some communal agreements in many places and miss spaces that really kind of you know, say, hey, these no-no words, behaviors, things are just not, we're not doing that here. They still happen, right? Like we know that they happen, right? Um, sometimes it's the result of kind of that reactionary, um, like I had a bad day and you stepped on my toe, that live wire, live wired, right? And so give us, you know, I gave as good as I got, right? So, but institutionally, how should we deal with, you know, some of these things that really do cross the line um, and are not really protected speech? They do cross from mean to more kind of um, um, institutionally representative hate speech, right? Um, I mean, if a professor says something, yeah, at that in, at that individual level, that person might be mean, but that person holds a position of power at an institution. And so if they say it to, you know, in a classroom with 150 students, it's now an institutional issue. So how should we really deal with that? I think a lot of this has to do with our overcorrecting in the last generation or so of friction. Like, I think that like remember when bullying was like number one topic in, in like middle school and elementary and high school, like, and it was like, we got to eliminate everything that could possibly be bullying. You can't play dodgeball. Don't be out here, like, picking on kids in the lunch. All of those things. But I think that what happened was we overcorrected it so much that any type of friction is kind of looked at as a hands-off approach. And hopefully it doesn't happen. And when it does happen, we kind of all admit that it happened and move on. So, like, if a professor who holds a high title in a classroom says something that they shouldn't say, that's automatic friction right there. And because that person is kind of put on a pedestal to the people who they're teaching, it kind of just stays there or they hope that it goes away or there is literally I feel some kind of way about you until the day I leave this class. But we're doing nothing about it because we kind of overcorrect this to the point where we forgot how to actually deal with friction. To me, friction, I look at very similar to like grief. I don't think grief is something to get over. It's something to learn to walk with and walk through so that you can understand now it's a part of you. What happened now? What do you do with it as opposed to trying to avoid it? Because it's going to happen and it is constantly happening. But often that friction, whether it be a microaggression, like those little cuts, which is a form of friction or it be something massive like that. We have to learn what to do in those moments instead of trying to actually pretend like they didn't happen. Hope that you never do them again or tell you that you completely never can go down that path because things like like the no, no words, for instance, like things like that. That's all morality stuff. I really think that's all morality stuff. Like who's to say what word should or shouldn't be said when and how? Like to me, in the English dialect, at least, I can't think of one word that can't be uttered in an educational sense. 
in an educational sense. However, if we aren't learning about those words and that history and you throw that stuff out there, that ain't the educational sense, you know? So I think that that's really where it comes in at. I don't believe that we should necessarily ban any word as long as it is being used for the right purpose, like an educational sense. Like, like think about all of the books America has banned in its history. Like I was at Harvard's library not too long ago, and they have like a table in the very front of all American books that were banned. Well, all books that America banned. And it was like the autobiography of Mark Max. It was like this. I'm like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Like, what are we doing here? Like it, and it was right next to Mein Kampf. And I'm like, all right. We got it. We can't let we can't let everybody determine our morality or what can and can't be seen or said. It has to really be a communal thing. And I think that once it's overstepped, though, once it's overstepped, though, one of the keys that we have to get better at is not to burn completely burn it down. I think too often it's like we completely just break eviscerate a person or institution because they might have said one of those no no words outside of it when that's an opportunity for growth, elevation and possible education. Sometimes I get it. Burning down happens and sometimes it feels warranted, but that can't be just the only it can't be nothing or burn down. It has to be some things in between. Yeah. Um, thanks for saying that, because a lot of times when a professor or administrator is kind of put in this position, um, you know, students will call me. I'm sure that they call you. I'm usually the second stop. <laughs> if I'm the first stop, I am like, and you should talk to your person at your institution. I cannot help you with this. Um, but I spend a lot of time with students um, who are minoritized, who are like, I want it burned down. This person shouldn't have a job, blah, 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 blah. And it and it is kind of still that in the ways that we have overcorrected, the response now is to overcorrect again, like in the opposite direction, right? And we're also kind of in this period of time where, to your point, like, all the books are being banned. <laughs> All these books are being banned. But are they being banned because of hate speech or because of meanness? Or oftentimes the um, the explanation with the bans come, they made a particular group of people feel bad about themselves. And I'm like, is that really a self-esteem issue? Or is that like, mm-hmm. is that something else? Because learning about history for people that look like me, um, you know, should not be harmful. (laughs) And I seem to be okay having grown up in an environment where I've had to learn mostly about people who don't look like me. (laughs) And I lived. I'm okay. We survived. It's not the end of the world, right? Elizabeth. I have a lot of thoughts, but I was I, know, right? I was thinking about just the, the the comment earlier about the flags, and I think about how other countries have banned flags. Like you cannot legally fly, fly certain flags. So yeah, for the United States, morality is more used to saying is is very very new, right? And so I think good leaders know what those no no words are because they're putting themselves in environments where they're learning about inequity or historical context to be better leaders, right? But they should also feel comfortable or get in the practice of feeling comfortable interrupting and redirecting conversations um, in the moment and being willing to do some of that follow-up education, I think that Maurice was talking about. But that's going to require a proactive approach, some upfront work where where often we work from the reaction, which I think you were talking about, Lisa, and folks calling you to to solve and and burn things down with them, right? And we we have to have our leaders learn and justify why some of these words are also historically rooted in discrimination and inequity. So it goes back to like, how can we make it systemic so that when we are having to correct or connect hate speech to no-no words, 
um, and, and root them back to discrimination and harassment, then it becomes professional feedback, not personal. Mm. And so we start to institutionalize a process that actually addresses um, when those things happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we're getting short on time, but I have two more questions that I really kind of want to process here. And and one of them is about viewpoint diversity, right? We're, which is another kind of new catchphrase that that we're hearing about. Um, and it really you know, I'm like, oh, what is that? And I'm like, okay, so there's there's this dichotomy um, here in the in the states, and it's just like, okay, so all right, the liberal woke, blah 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 blah. I mean, we could just have a whole show just on what is wokeness. Um, that's I'm going to kick that can down the road this fall, but but you know, kind of here's the the what is presumed to be the liberal um, kind of viewpoint. What happens with the absence, or is there an absence of conservative viewpoints? And you know, I mean, I'm kind of like, hey, everybody say what they need to say. For me, it gets back to, and it is, you know, to to Maurice's um, point that he's driven home a, a number of times, this kind of morality piece, my own personal morality is that, you know, hey, as long as your viewpoint is not denigrating people's humanity, their fundamental humanity, like, do your thing, go ahead, go off, like, say what you need to say. For me, that's my line, right? But we're also in a situation now with the viewpoint pieces where, there is also this movement to institutionalize morality, <laughs> right? So, you know, as an administrator, as, you know, someone working in an educational environment, how do you create that balance and that space for folks who may or may not be completely sold on the DEI kind of um, approach to some of these things, right? And the kind of this particular framework that at least the three of us work under, um, how do we have that kind of inclusivity for everyone's viewpoint? But also, again, there's the no-no words and behaviors and actions and all of these things. Elizabeth, oh, I'm going to go to Elizabeth first. Oh, my yeah. Bad, my bad. Elizabeth? I don't know. I'm still thinking about the question. I feel like I'm happy to pass it to Maurice because I feel like I didn't understand the viewpoint diversity aspect just yet and maybe that's where I stand is I feel like we do have to talk about these things earlier on because we the only way we have been addressing inequity hate speech discrimination harassment is from a reactive standpoint and so we don't have enough conversation about what we consider even if it's institutional it could be it could be in relation to what are what are our ethical considerations in veterinary medicine what are the competences we hope for professionals in this work and we can root them in those things and i think in that way we are able to kind of create a set of um considerations of competencies that we expect professionals to have so yeah. the the viewpoint like having both sides nothing that there isn't room for growth and redirection because we should have a place for discourse and disagreement that should be a part of our practice but i think we should be able to comfortably articulate where we do stand in certain things so mm, yeah Maurice. I'll give like three quick ones and um, no particular order. One is to actually have your institution behind you, because if you're just out there on the limb by yourself, I think that no matter what you bring to the table or whoever you bring to that table, 
it will be feeling really wishy-washy if it doesn't actually align with your institutional support of you. So that's one. Two, I think that there has to be a legitimate conversation with the people probably in the majority who feel that way about DEI stuff and talk about, okay, your feelings are justified. Your facts may not be. So let's dig into those as opposed to how you feel, but why you feel like that. And then the third thing is having a real conversation about, are you afraid to be replaced or are you afraid for our institution to not exist? Which I think are not the same exact thing all of the time. Okay. He like just drops these gems and then just like logs off. Right. So, um, but I mean, I think that, that, yeah, these are really important things. And I, and I do like that distinction. Like we can validate your feelings, which are often rooted in fear, right. Around mm-hmm. DEI stuff. They're really often rooted in fear, um, whether it is fear of loss. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I, I was listening to a podcast and was, um, oh, actually, no, I'm listening to um, Ameri- the book American White Lash right now. And it was like, like, we're losing our rights. And I'm like, which right? What, which, which rights are those? <laughs> like, I'm not sure which ones have been curbed. I can list these that everybody's kind of dealing with, but like, which ones have you lost? Um, but we can validate the feelings around loss, right? But that doesn't legitimize the data set that they're kind of rooted in, right? Um, that that um, you know the meme evidence, as I like to call it, you know, of the here's the FBI stats that are not particularly quite accurate, but they show up in a meme with like you know your favorite like news commentator, right? And so um, you know, I can I can actually meet you at that place. Um, to kind of say, I, I get that it's concerning for you. It's concerning for me too. Like, where can we, where can we meet? Yeah. Yeah. So my last question for both of you is um, as both, you know, administrators, staff um, who work with other administrators, staff, students, faculty, everybody, what do you think is the one thing educators should know and understand about speech in the context of education. I'll say it, just be proactive. I mean, we're still reactive. We've had 400 plus years to correct this stuff, but we're here we are. But if you can take just some proactive steps and know that it's not an option on whether we should know about inequity anymore. It's an expectation as leaders, as educators, as employees, as researchers, um, to strengthen and empower the next gen, right? And so part of being proactive is getting training and strengthening our skill sets to address hate speech and discrimination or harassment. We can go to conferences and workshops that provide actual training um, and education on how to do free speech and how to include free speech in your classroom or how to eliminate hate speech in your work settings. And you can do a literature review on litigation and critical thought analysts who are, because we're not thought analysts, but uh, in some way, I guess we are, but who talk about these subjects and there are folks like Patricia Hill Collins and uh, Richard Delgado and Kimberly Crenshaw and Gloria Lutz and Billings and several others that can kind of help start that learning process. And I also have books that I'm happy to re- um, to recommend, Lisa, if I can Great. share those book citations yeah. with you. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll put those in the show notes. Uh, Maurice, what's your what's your thing? What's your guidance? Time, so I'll give I'll give one simple sentence. Your your credentials should not dictate who is and who isn't heard as it relates to speech. We're gonna just start putting stuff on t-shirts. So <laughs> um and you know, and that 
is, see, now I got to take a a minute to unpack that, right? And so um, we're supposed to be wrapping up, but I got to take a minute to unpack that as someone who came into the profession without a doctorate, who has worked in academia. um, And I mean, you all are in academia, like the ivory tower and the um, uh, issues around um, you know, education level attainment and um, whether or not you have a DR period in front of your name, all of those kinds of things can be incredibly, um, like, don't get me wrong, I like the DR period. However, <laughs> however, like, it's not the be all end all. And if I'm using it to somehow diminish other people and kind of push myself forward, then that's something I'm very uncomfortable with, right? Mm -hmm. Particularly in spaces where there are other folks with marginalized identities. Like, I'm really kind of like, yo, like, we can just lay that to the side. It's still there. I can pick it up when I want to. But, um, you know, what you've um, articulated is really indicative of, um, frankly, the exclusionary practices, frankly, of, of academia. And, and again, all of those exclusionary practices are forms of speech. Whew. So um, really great discussion. I want to thank both of you. I, my own kind of um, guidance to folks is, yes, I'm absolutely um, in alignment with Elizabeth. Get your skills up. Get them up, get them up, get them up. To really try to reduce, um, you know, the incidence of um, hate speech, but also really try to work on the mean speech, too, and recognize mm-hmm. that those things are um, both problematic. Maybe, you know, you can layer one above the other in terms of their impact, but both can be really problematic. And if you are allowing these kinds of verbal and nonverbal speech that is exclusionary, people really just can't function at their at their best um, in environments where that is allowed to happen unchecked. You don't have to cancel them, um, but you can check them, right? And I do believe that, um, you know, the on-site, we need to have a conversation. <laughs> but we need to have a conversation is like the low-key version of on-site. On-site is a little bit more like we are having a conversation right now. Um, let's have a conversation might be, can we, can, we step, can we step out in the hallway for just a minute? <laughs> that's, a, that's the other podcast, the on-site. <laughs> that's, that's the other podcast. <laughs> So, well, thank you both for um, joining me uh, late on a Friday afternoon in the summer. I really appreciate it. Um, This has been another episode of AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. To my guests, Elizabeth and Maurice, thank you so much for joining me. Um, Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app and um, follow AAVMC on all of our social media channels. So um, we will see you soon for another episode. uh, show. We will be talking about conflict resolution soon. And um, I'm very, very excited. We have booked a show with Dr. Willie Reed, the inaugural awardee of AVMA's Frederick Douglass Patterson Award. Um, very, very exciting. So we'll be talking with him um, in a few weeks. Mm-hmm.